You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I assume you're watching the Olympics, and if you watch the Olympics, one of the things that you see is that sometimes a loss can turn into a victory. There, there, there are stories that have been catching my attention, I assume yours. One of the stories is Jeremy Abbott, the figure skater, the U.S. figure skater, who goes up and to do his quadruple whatever and comes down with a snap. It's just horrifying. Slides against the boards, and that's the end. But as he struggles to stand up, the crowd in the, in, in the stadium begin to erupt with applause as though a, a figure skater had just stuck the greatest uh, kind of, you know, uh, what, what do they call those, figures or uh, tricks, uh, and, and they just celebrate this guy for getting up. And then you may have seen the story of Anton Gafarov. He's the Russian cross-country skier who had two crashes. Uh, and he, after the second crash, his ski was so badly damaged and wrapped around his foot, he was literally dragging himself uh, towards the finish line. The Russian coaches looked and just felt embarrassed, but there was a Canadian coach who reflexively went and grabbed a spare ski and raced onto the track kneeled down, took this guy's dilapidated ski off and put a new ski on. Then there was another story, a guy, Dennis, Denny Morrison, who's a Canadian speed skater, who fell in the heat, so he was not able to make it into the uh, finals, and he's a skater with great promise. Well, he has a teammate who's a rival, Gilmore Junio, who comes and gives up his place in the final round. So that Denny can skate and win a silver medal. To me, these are the best stories. And there are a lot of stories, but these are the best ones. And they're, and they're great because they speak of love. And you and I are made for love. There's love at the heart of the universe. You and I are made to receive love and we're made to share love. We're made to celebrate love. We're made to tell stories about love so we can talk about a crowd. We're moved by a crowd who looks at a failure and celebrates them like a master. And we go, wow. Or we look at a coach who, to the other team, runs out there with a, 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 a ski because, as he said in his own word, I just wanted him to finish with dignity. Or we look at a skater who's been working all of his life to compete in the Olympics, and in the final hour, he gives up his moment of glory to let a teammate skate. These are stories of love. I have been captured by uh, the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman. If you're young, uh, you may know him as Plutarch in the last Hunger Games. But here's a man who's a beautiful person, and, um, and yet he died, um, succumbed to a heroin addiction, February 2nd, a needle in his arm, found dead in his bathroom in his apartment. Philip Seymour Hoffman most recently played, I think it was 2012, um, Willie Loman, in the death of a salesman, which is ironically a play about a man who wants nothing but to love his family well and ultimately to be loved. And Hoffman was doing an interview with NPR not long ago in which he said that's what the play is all about, to be loved. And he said it's love that gets you out of bed in the morning. And I want to suggest to you this morning that you and I are never more like God than when we love. For God so loved 
the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. You are never more like God than when you love, and you're made to love. And so the question here in my few minutes that I want to raise with you is, how could we become people who love more? How can I become a person who loves more? How could you become a person who loves more? How could we become a church? How can we in our worship and outreach and community love more? How could your family love more? How could your friends love more? How could your fraternity love more? How could your business love more? Well, the Bible suggests help that I hadn't thought about before this week. You see, when I think about love, I usually think about two parties. Uh, the person who loves, the agent, and the person who is loved, the object. But here we're going to look at a text in a few minutes that introduces a third person into the equation. There is a third person, and that is the person who provokes love. See, who brings these two parties together and allows them to love and to be loved. That's the provocateur. Uh, someone who incites. Someone who agitates. Someone who stirs up. Someone who catalyzes love. And if you and I ever feel a little dry, a little weary and loveless, I wonder. It's that we haven't made room in our life for that kind of a provocateur. So let's look at Hebrews. Actually, I want to look at two passages today. One in Hebrews, which tells us what to do. And then one in Matthew, which shows us how it's done. So let's open up our Bible to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. This is the first of our two texts. And uh, you're going to find that on page 976 of the Pew Bible. If you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. There it is in verse 24. The provocateur, it's you. It's what the writer calls one another. He says, provoke one another to love and good deeds. Now, can I just make three really quick observations about this? The first is that this is about putting love into action. Okay? When it says love and good works, that's probably one thing, not two things. Love is the good work. But, but it's love that works. It's love that becomes a deed. It's love that becomes an action. And so, first of all, this is not just about sentiment or feeling. It's about feeling that becomes practical, becomes action. Uh, a second um, observation here is not just about putting love in action. It's, it's going to require a relationship. And that's implicit in the term one another. As I've said all along through this series, this one pronoun, alone in Greek, always implicates two parties who engage the action simultaneously and mutually with one another. 
So to be a provocateur is, is to provoke. It's also to be provoked. He's really talking here about a culture from which love arises and issues forth in action. Okay? Not talking about individuals going out and doing it on... He's actually calling individuals together into this provocative experience of, of one another so that we do something that allows us to be more loving because we gathered. And then thirdly uh, is this third person, this one who provokes. And here the Greek word provoke is, is two words that are put together. It's the word for beside and the word for sharp. Sounds dangerous. Somebody comes alongside who's a little bit sharp, who makes you feel just a little bit uncomfortable with your apathy. Somebody who comes alongside with a spur or with a prod and unsettles you enough to start putting love into action. Now, it it does sound a little uncomfortable, and it might be at times, but it's never harmful. It's never hurtful. And you can see that because the writer puts this phrase, provoke one another, into parallel with encourage one another, which is why you need to read both verses together, because these illuminate one another, these two commandments, to provoke one another and to encourage one another. Again, two ways of saying the same thing. So this provocation, this is a third person who comes between someone who really needs to start loving and somebody who desperately needs to be loved and says, you know what, let me come alongside and just poke a little bit. The third party. Let me come alongside and just encourage you to start putting love into action. And I think in the absence of this ministry, well then the church will stop demonstrating the fullness of the incarnate love of God in Jesus Christ. And that's what happens here. Just a quick word of background. Apparently, this is a gathering of believers who used to love really well. If you look two paragraphs down, you'll see this. But recall those earlier days. And you know, some of us knew an earlier day when we had more love for God and we had more love for our neighbor. And so the writer is saying, recall those earlier days when after you had been enlightened, that is after you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and persecution and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion for those who were in prison and you cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves possessed something better and more lasting. And Jesus is love. But what's happened? Well, there's an indication here that those who used to meet together are no longer doing so as regularly. Remember verse 25. Not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of some. You see, some of you aren't meeting as much as you used to. Some of you still think you believe in Jesus and still try to love with Jesus' love, even to be loved by Jesus. But you know, it's hard to do it when you're just alone. And, and, and you've got to start getting back into that habit of, of gathering. We're asked to picture here probably a house church somewhere, about 15 to 20 people. Certainly they would gather on the Lord's Day on Sunday, just as we are here, but they may very well have gathered more frequently than that, possibly even every day. And we would think of this like a small group. Don't neglect meeting together, but meet together and then provoke one another to love and good deeds. You provoke and you be provoked, and there's a synergy that happens so that each of the parts is much. Uh, the whole is much greater than uh, the sum of the parts. Okay, so that's our text here in Hebrews chapter 10. Um, 
Do you ever get to a place in your life where you know the right emotional response is love, but you can't feel it? Have you ever found yourself reading the news or watching someone get hurt and you say to yourself, I should really feel sad about that, but I don't. And all you can say is that stinks for you, if you're honest with yourself. Do you ever get to the place where even if you feel the right emotion, maybe you see something on TV and you go, wow, there's a little kid with flies on his face and he's hungry and I, 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 it breaks my heart to see that. And then you flip the channel and it never results in action. It never gets you actually to do anything that might actually help that human being in front of you. And so you see, this is the problem that the writer is trying to address. He says, don't, don't, don't start giving up on one another. No, gather with one another and provoke one another to love that becomes action. All right, so I want to look at the second text because if you're like me, you're still not really able to understand what this looks like. And Jesus shows us what it looks like. So would you open up to Matthew uh, chapter 14? I'll read it for you, and you can just listen. You don't even have to turn there, but I'm going to reflect on this passage. Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. By the way, those of you who are parents, this is the text our children are studying in their classes this morning. So you can talk about it with them on the ride home. It's the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus as provocateur. Jesus not as one who loves directly, but Jesus as one who provokes love. See, he's the third person here. This is a moment of crisis. This is a moment when news has just spread that Herod has beheaded John the Baptist. Jesus himself, I believe, is crushed with grief. And so... All of the Jews who had hoped that John the Baptist would be bringing the kingdom of God. That's the context. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this about the loss of John, he withdrew from there. He just want to be alone in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We've nothing here. Five loaves and two fish. And Jesus said, Bring them. Bring the fish, bring the loaf. Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish. I mean, this is nothing, right? Got 5,000 men to say nothing of how many women and, and children. This is nothing, but look what Jesus does. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves. In other words, he gave thanks. Thank you, God, for everything we have. Thank you, God, for how much you've given us for hungry people. And then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. 12 because 12 disciples, 12 because 12 tribes of Israel. This is Matthew telling you, this is the people of God. This is God's beloved community, all of a sudden visible in the, in the context of crisis and need. 
And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Jesus provokes his followers to put love into action. He provokes them to be the people of God in the midst of need. He provokes them to be a life-changing community as they learn to love their neighbors. And they weren't going to do it. No, they weren't. They're as heartbroken as Jesus is. They want to be in a deserted place too. They want to be me and Jesus, Jesus and me. I don't have time or energy for anybody else. A little me time. That's what they want. But Jesus provokes them into emotion and into relationship. So there are two things I want you to pay attention to, the heart and the help. What God feels and what God has given you. I'm going to work with this in a second, but I want to, before I do, tell you about a scene in a movie that has captured my heart. And literally, I believe God wants me to share it with you today because since I saw it a couple weeks ago, I have not been able to stop thinking about it. I wish I could show it to you, but it's, it's a scene in which Philip Seymour Hoffman, ironically, is acting. And it, it, there are a lot of subplots in this movie, this one sort of recurring scene, and it's, it's a, a man who's dying in a well-appointed living room. His bed is there. He's obviously a man of great means. He's old. He's got cancer, and he's, he's, he's clearly dying. He is estranged from his son. They had a real hard, a brutal relationship. And uh, they're not talking to each other. They hate each other. They're angry with each other. And you learn more about that as this movie keeps coming back to this scene. But I ask myself, why is Philip Seymour Hoffman in there? Because he's not one of the main characters. What's he doing? Well, Philip Seymour Hoffman's playing um, a hospice nurse. He's in blue scrubs. And he doesn't say a whole lot. But what you do see is his reaction to this man's dying. You see his eyes start to turn red. You see his head hung low. He shakes it. He leans against the wall. He touches the man and then can't look into his eyes. And I'm thinking, man, this character really has pathos. He's got empathy. He feels somebody else's pain in a way that I don't. I mean, I don't know this character. It's just a movie, right? And I don't feel it until I see his face. And then I begin to feel, what would it be like to be a, a man who lived your whole life who's dying now of cancer in pain, but more importantly, in regret because you feel the guilt of having destroyed your family. And see, Hoffman gets it. And he's a proxy for you and me as we watch the movie. And it begins to move our hearts. And I want to tell you that's what Jesus does for his disciples at this moment. See, they're preoccupied with John the Baptist. They're preoccupied with this. It's like a humanitarian crisis out here, Jesus. It's getting late. And we got a bunch of people who are showing up. And there are no vendors. And all we have is nothing. You better send them back where they can fend for themselves. And they can hardly get Jesus' attention. What's he doing? As the crowd gets bigger and bigger, what's Jesus doing? He's walking through the crowd. He's looking for people, young and old, who are sick. He's touching them. He's healing them. 
His eyes are red with grief. He's crying. This is the heart of God. The text says Jesus had compassion for the crowds. And he can't pay attention to anything else. And and when his disciples look into his face, they begin to feel their own compassion grow. Jesus humanizes the crowds. These are people that have favorite colors. These are people that have dreams. These are people that once were beloved children of doting parents. Now they look broken and bruised and hungry and dying. But God loves them. And I don't know how you feel about your neighbor, but I can tell you one thing for sure today, and that is that God loves your neighbor. God loves your neighbor. And when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you see the the lengths that God, the creator of the universe, who's supposed to be impassable, all-powerful, immovable, dying on a cross in love, you gotta believe God loves your neighbor. People matter to God. And so to be a person who starts to provoke one another is simply to represent to one another the heart of God. And when we gather in worship, we do that by celebrating this grand narrative. And when we get together in in small groups and tell our own stories, we begin to sensitize one another to what it feels like to be another human being who's not you. And you start to make contact with God's love for that person. And that's going to motivate you. That's the first half of the provocation, the heart and Hoffman does that for the audience in this scene. But there's another thing that Hoffman does, and that is at some point he hears this dying man utter the name of his son, and he'd never known the name before, but it gave him enough information to make a phone call. And to call person after person, he gets on hold, and he's waiting, and he's, in, he's impassioned as he's trying to get, I have to speak to this. His father is dying. And one way or another, uh, Hoffman succeeds in bringing... Uh, the son, this estranged son, into the room with his father. And it doesn't go well because the son hates the father and the father hates the son and they're cursing. And again, you see Hoffman in the background going, oh my gosh. But he's bringing them together. He's enabling them to love one another. So this is the second provocation. We see it in Jesus. Jesus connects us to the heart of God, but he also connects us to the help of God. And he asks you to consider, what has God given you? Right? Because that's the key question here. They go, Jesus, I love your compassion, but look, the most compassionate thing to do right now is to send these people away. Let them fend for themselves, because we got nothing. And Jesus says, really, he challenges that. You have nothing? And when you and I look at our bank balances or the amount of time that we have or our emotional energy or whatever, and we say, I'd love to help, but I got nothing, Jesus says, oh, Really? Because the transformational moment in this text is when Jesus takes the, the nothing, the five loaves and the two fish, and he holds them up. He says, thank you, God, that you've given us everything, everything we need to love. Everything we need is right here, and we thank you for it. And by faith, he gets these people to stop looking at themselves and what they don't have and start looking at the abundance of a loving God. And by faith, he says, you have so much more than you realize. This whole thing's not dependent upon you. It's dependent on on the heart. It's at the center of the universe. And they start to believe it. And um, so what we find out is that Jesus really isn't feeding the 5,000. No, it's the disciples that feed the 5,000. 
Jesus just provokes them to see what they have and to engage it themselves and to make love practical for people in need. And that's what it means to provoke. That's what I mean. That's why you and I can't afford to stop gathering together. That's why it's so important that we get in a small group because, you know, we are called to love our neighbors and sometimes we don't know what God feels about our neighbors and sometimes we don't know what we have that in God's hands can be so very useful to them. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't give up gathering as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. Well, uh, there's a story about a man who loved a woman and he wrote her a letter every day to prove it. He couldn't get her to respond. He, he wrote her every day and after a year, even that wasn't enough, so he said, I'm going to write three letters a day. And so he writes three letters a day. He'd finally written 700 letters. And you know what happened in the end? She married the mailman. <laughs> and they, It's a silly story, you know. The point of the story is Proximity matters. <laughs> and you can think God's been rather irresponsible with the way he's managed this world. There's so many people that need love. Or you could begin to believe, as I'm beginning to believe, that God is perfectly capable of loving every single person on this planet. And then, in fact, he's put you in relationship with the people that need to be loved. And that you and I have a responsibility to provoke each other to see that and to engage that. Proximity matters. I talk about formational community. It's because there are two great mandates. One is to is the mission of, of, of God in the world, to love all creation. And the other is the formation mandate, that God wants to change you as you do that. You can't do one without the other. You can't participate in God's mission in the world without being formed as his disciple. You can't be formed as his disciple without participating in his mission in the world. It's not going to happen in a classroom. It's not going to happen by reading books. It's going to happen as you and I together start loving our neighbors and seeing what God has given us. They'll never be the same, these people, because of that day. And you and I will never be the same either. Last year, one of you, actually several of you, started provoking me. I was in a small group of some of our UMIN students. And it was a Cornish college student, Justine. She said, George, you've been asking for prayer about this man who's got a business here in town whose business is going poorly and whose wife is dying of cancer. It's time for us to do something about that. And I said, what do you think we should do? And she said, let's paint his business. I said, I'm not a painter. Justine provoked me. We met a painter, a guy named David. I don't know if David's here now. David's actually one of our custodians. David said, you know what? I'm a painter. I could do this with you. So we got David on the job. Another one of you, Ed, he says, I got a truck. I can get you there. And so we put this team of people together out of our small groups, and we painted this house. And I'll tell you, the expression on this owner's face is priceless, but what really matters to me is how I've changed. Because now I have a friend who once was just a neighbor. And now I can walk into his store any time of day, as I've done, and pray with him. I pray for his wife, who she's since died. Now I pray for his daughter, Juliana. We've stood in the parking lot and we've prayed for each other. God has shown up and you provoked me to love. Well, I want you to think today about what your mission is. If you're in a small group, you've got to think about what's the mission of this small group. It's not a Bible study. It's, it's more than a Bible study. What's, the, what's your mission? What has God given you? Who are your neighbors? How does God feel about them? 
And what can you start doing to put love into action? I'm in a small group, a network of, of young marrieds, and we know marriage is really hard. And for people who are just starting out to marriage, they get in a lot of trouble. We get in a lot of trouble, so we want to be a mass unit for people who are struggling to, to figure out how to be married in their first five years. That's our mission. What's your mission? What's your group's mission? What's your family's mission? What's your business's mission? I'm not talking about what's on the letterhead. I'm talking about you as a follower of Jesus. How are you provoking one another in that community to love and good deeds? Well, just imagine, we have 320 small groups. If we started to do this, if every one of our groups had a mission to love their neighbors, just imagine how the city would be affected, but how would we be affected? i got to get out of here. (laughs) Jesus is our third person. Jesus is the one who is in every act of love. And here's the good news. Unlike our friends who are struggling to get Olympic medals, our goal is not to win a victory. Our goal is to expose a victory. See, because the victory's already been won in Jesus Christ. And now you and I are called an incredible privilege of letting the world see it. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you that there is nothing in heaven and on earth that can keep us from the love of Christ. Thank you for this reminder that you love us in all of our brokenness, in all of our rebellion, in all of our weakness and shame. You love us. You call it. You're not ashamed to call us your people, as the writer says in Hebrews. You're not ashamed of us. Thank you also, though, that we don't just store that fact in a little box until we get to heaven, but that we can embody and experience that love today. We are your incarnate people on a mission. Empower us. Bring to our minds, as we have these conversations these week in our small groups, in our families, and wherever, Lord, you be the one who directs the conversation so that we get clarity around the call that you've set right before us, and then help us to respond with love and action. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.